Welcome back, everyone. Musician Go Nakamura is back again this week. In last week's episode, he talked about playing a romantic lead in Surrogate Valentine and Daylight Savings. And this week, we asked him to talk about an Asian-American romance that has made an impact on him. So without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian-American pop culture history. You know, I'll be honest, when you guys asked me to do this, I I got a little scared because I was like, oh man, I can't think of any Asian American romantic comedies, um, maybe other than like Saving Face. But then, you know, I was I was sick, so I had all this time like in bed just like scouring the back pages and uh for the kids <laughs> back in the day before YouTube, the biggest game changers for me as a kid were uh getting a microwave oven and then a VCR. I remember like getting in trouble because I was screaming so loud because I was so excited. It just meant like, oh, we can like rent videos and stuff. And I didn't really see many Asian faces, right? And I remember there's this one movie, it was called Living on Tokyo Time. She just came from Japan and she wants to stay in America. So? Mr. Ken and I are husband and wife, so I can obtain green card. She Japanese people are so weird. He's a would-be rock and roller whose only tie to Japan is his looks. How about you, Bubba? You uh, you got any sad stories? I got married. It's an offbeat 80s marriage where the cultural bridge is romance and humor. I was like tripping out because I was like, am I the only person who's who's ever seen this? And like, I, I rented it just because it was like so weird. And I back then I didn't think about race at all or anything. So Living on Tokyo Time from 1987, it's directed by Oscar winning director Steven Nokasaki, who's best known for his documentaries about Japan and Japanese America. But in 1987, he made this wild and weird little romantic comedy called Living on Tokyo Time, which is about... This Japanese-American guy living in San Francisco. There's a young woman from Japan, and she wants to stay longer in the U.S., and she decides to marry this guy for a visa. Lana told me, Ken will grow on me like a fungus. And that kind of sets up various sorts of fun and games, but really the movie is thinking seriously about two people at a certain moment in their lives when they have to think about what does love mean to them. There's things that I could definitely relate to, you know, like there's this guy, he's sort of trying to get back in touch with his culture and he's having these language barriers with this native Japanese woman. Also, he's like a musician, you know, so like that's probably what attracted me to it in the first place. It's like, oh, I want to know what the struggle of an Asian American guitar player is like, you know, but I mean, that, that plays like a pretty small part in in the movie. I mean, it would definitely fit within like the certain kind of mid 80s, Jim Jarmusch, awkward, uh, awkward comedy yeah, it's pretty awkward. That <laughs> character is like so deadpan, almost to where it's, it's totally painful to watch. But he's very sweet. Hey, Ken, do you have the first Backstreet Crawler LP? The band or the Casa solo? Solo. Yeah. How about loaning that to me? It's out of print. I'll take it for you. That'd be great. There is some gut-wrenching guitar on that LP. Yeah, Casa was great. Too bad he died. Yeah, he's in rock and roll heaven with Jimmy. Excuse me, but do you guys know how to talk about anything but rock and roll? What, what else is there? There aren't a lot of characters like him in Asian American cinema today. 
it's also just so savvy with what was going on in music at that time. I mean, it looks kind of quaint now, but that, you know, Asian Americans can be part of a, a cool subculture. Can we think of other romances that are about Asian Americans falling in love with somebody from Asia? That seems like a great formula for certain kinds of hijinks, but I'm trying to, I'm having trouble thinking of other ones. I'm sure there are. Sometimes we're always like, I'm sure there are, and then there aren't. That would seem like the most common. It should be a cliched story, right? <laughs> the most common scenario is Asian and white pairings and those hijinks. Yeah. But I think if, if so much of what Asian American cinema is trying to define is a difference from Asia, it's like this an Americanness, like doing this kind of subtle difference would be a way to proclaim that we are American. I mean, at that time in the 1980s, nobody was talking about Asian American cinema. I mean, this wasn't falling under the umbrella of that as a movement. So you saw it like pretty much when it came out, like soon after it came out. I think so. I mean, well, yeah, it must have been like 1988 or something. Yeah, and the film came out in 87. Yeah. yeah. So, man, at that time, it was, just, it was just Wayne Wang, I think, making Asian American films, like on a consistent, like Chan is Missing and, and stuff like that. Right. Like, would this be the first Asian American film you, you saw? Oh, man, it, it might be. Um, what, what an introduction. <laughs> yeah. Because I went to my first Asian American film festival in, yeah, probably like 99 or something. My first Nata experience was a documentary. It was a movie called Rabbit in the Moon. I think it was about the camps. Well, that's definitely when Asian American cinema was. Like so much of it was about the camps and so much of it was documentary. Anything that steered a little bit different really stood out. I was looking at the, I don't know if, if Ada, you saw it, the VHS tape on the, on the cover and how they were trying to sell this movie. Oh yeah, do you have it? It was something like finding the three R's. What is it? Romance, rock and roll. Romance, rejection, and rock and roll. It's kind of a cool cover. That probably is what sold me. On the top it says, A New American Comedy by Stephen Okazaki. A comedy as American as sushi and apple pie. We talked a little about his character, but I think even now you don't see versions of her character that often either. That's true. She's never made to be this like weird exotic outsider. Mm -hmm. And she's really concerned about the directions in her life and whether love should be a part of it. When I first came to United States, my family wrote me every week. Their letters were always the same. They say, Kyoko, come home. America is not like Japan. It's not surprising that our friend David Chen, who produced Salad Days, has been long recommending this film to us. Comedic characters, romantic characters in Asian American films, even if they're like anxious and nervous, they tend to be so in a very polished way. Whereas in Living in Tokyo Time, you can be kind of an obnoxious guy. I don't like Japanese food and still be the carrier of romance and, and hopes for romance. What Stephen Okazaki made was something on a whole other world, which I think is another reason why living on Tokyo time is this orphaned object, because it doesn't really fit in the, in the narrative like, that we like to tell about what makes Asian American cinema important. But in hindsight, it's like, who even cares? I mean, it was your first Asian American film, and it's one that we remember today. I'd love to see risks like that being taken in Asian American cinema today. Yeah, I was trying to find it for the longest time, and someone uploaded some clips on YouTube. To this day, it's not on DVD; it's only on VHS because it hasn't been canonized in that way. Man, we gotta digitize that. I gotta gotta see that again. <laughs> you should play at the film festival and bring him back for a Q and A. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> Who should I e email Stephen Okazaki? 
I wonder who has like a 35 millimeter print of that. I doubt there's an HD master of it anywhere. And he, he definitely, like he's moved back into the documentary world, Oscar nominated. Uh, I don't know if he's so interested in revisiting his, his narrative films. You don't think so? You never know. You never know. You never know. Maybe this movie was a representation of a certain time in his life. You should ask him. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that features stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our logo is by Grace Tallis Lee. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. We have a Tiny Letter newsletter you can sign up for to get lecture notes. Tinyletter.com slash Saturday School Podcast. Or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Sats School. Next week, we're going way back in time. We're talking almost a century back in time. Your assignment is to watch The Dragon Painter from 1919, a silent film starring Seshu Hayakawa. So that's your assignment for the week. Class dismissed. You still here? Check out one of the other shows in the Potluck Podcast Collective, like Drunk Monk, where Keiko Ogena and Will Choi get drunk and rewatch every episode of the USA Network's hit TV show Monk. They recently invited Emily Kuroda onto this show and had a mini Gilmore Girls reunion. So that's for everyone who thought there should have been more Lane and Mrs. Kim in the Netflix Gilmore Girls revival. For that and more, go to podcastpotluck.com. See you next week! <laughs>